Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. Great excitement is spreading across China as the Year of the Dragon is about to dawn. Legend has it that dragons are sacred creatures, drawing power, success, and luck down to earth from the heavens. Lunar New Year falls on February the 10th, 2024. So what forces will shape the economy of China in the year ahead? Is luck on China's side? Or will the troubles related to the property market crash, mounting debt, and an ongoing tech war with the United States continue to take their toll? I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast someone who's given this topic considerable thought. He's Paul Hodges, founder of New Normal Consulting, who joins me on the line from Portugal. Paul, welcome back to China in Context. Thank you very much for having me, Duncan. So dragons are auspicious creatures, and I know that many Chinese parents want to have children in dragon years, but actually there are many families facing challenges in China at the moment. Can you talk us through some of them? Yes, well, I'm, I'm actually a golden dragon, uh, Duncan, uh, which uh, you'll be, you know, puts me even further up your list of, uh, of special guests because there are only, this only happens every 60 years. Um, and so I suppose, you know, from a, a golden dragon viewpoint, the key issue is, is twofold, the direct and indirect impact of the one child policy that began in 1980. The policy certainly achieved its objectives, uh, which were to reduce dramatically the number of births, and they've halved from 21 million in 1981 to just 10 million last year. But what we're seeing is an ongoing disaster from a social and economic viewpoint. Poorer countries have always prioritised boy babies for cultural and other reasons. And so after 1980, Chinese couples faced an agonising choice. Surveys at the time and still showed that most still wanted a boy and a girl baby. But now they had to choose, and many reluctantly chose to have a boy rather than a girl. And so the gender difference at birth, normally 103 to 105 boys are born versus every 100 girls, rose instead to a peak of 118 boys to 100 girls. What does this mean? From a social perspective, it means that China has already lost, as it were, a total of 87 million girls since 1980 versus what would have been the normal girl-boy ratio uh, before that time. Now, that obviously has a major social impact because boys are still being born, but they can't marry girls who haven't been born. And it's a disaster absolute disaster from an economic perspective because family formation drives housing demand. So it means that China is now locked into a vicious circle. Property prices in Shanghai, for example, are currently 50 times earnings, which most people think is pretty expensive. Well, you've covered a lot of ground there, Paul, and I'm very struck about the uh, dilemmas facing young men uh, in China as they're looking for partners. But look, this is the time of year that people give out red envelopes called Hongbao, filled with lucky money to give, generally speaking, to children. And there are parades and banquets and bright lanterns. There's also a culture of handing out those Hongbao envelopes to seniors. 
What challenges do those older people encounter in China? It's a very important point, Duncan. I mean, one of the great things about the last 30 or 40 years, not only in China, but around the world, has been the incredible increase in life expectancy. But if life expectancy increases without sufficient provision being made for comprehensive social welfare programs to protect and support older people, this is very bad news. Now, on the, on the positive side, those entitled to an urban pension are relatively well off if they've held a salary position and their employer has paid the necessary contributions. If you haven't qualified for that, supposing you're a rural worker who's migrated to the city but only has hukou status, they have a pension averaging just $25 a month. And of course, because of the downturn in the property market and the impact of that on local governments who have relied on land sales to meet their budgets, health benefits are also being reduced. So in Wuhan, for example, uh, CNN reported that retirees have seen their medical benefits cut by 70%. So this unfortunately also helps to create the vicious circle because what China needs to do is to increase its share of domestic consumption as a part of GDP from the currently very low 40%. But of course, if you're worried about income and worried about future welfare needs, you actually save more and therefore you cut back on personal consumption. So it's all going in the wrong direction, unfortunately. Well, let's talk about another demographic group, young people who are in the early stages of their career or who are just out of college. Now, I noticed that in the middle of last year, the government reported that youth unemployment in China had reached about 21%. That's pretty high, isn't it? But they haven't published any more data on that since then. So what does that tell us about the nature of the problem? Well, Duncan, I mean, you're more experienced with dealing with governments than me, I expect. But my general guess is that they don't stop publishing data when it's reporting good news. So I think we have to assume that the problem of youth unemployment is getting worse rather than better. One sign of this may be the massive increase in young people taking the postgraduate entrance exam this year. 4.74 million took it this year, more than double the 2 million in 2017, which suggests that the youth unemployment problem is getting worse rather than better. Well, that's a very good point. And I think you're also right to say that the Chinese government does like to push the good news and bury the bad news under the carpet in many instances. So, I mean, it was very striking to me that in his New Year speeches, uh, Xi Jinping was emphasising uh, how important it was for propaganda to talk up the Chinese economy. <laughs> the, uh, the rise in youth unemployment doesn't fit very well with that story, does it? But look, many of the experts who I speak to on this podcast say to me that the Chinese Communist Party has an implicit deal with its citizens. We will raise your living standards. You keep us in power. Do you think that long-standing arrangement is coming under pressure? I, I don't think it's under major pressure today, Duncan, partly because, let's face it, there's no real alternative to the Communist Party. And let's be realistic for a moment. Deng Xiaoping's success in pushing through his reform and opening up policy from December 1978 has delivered major benefits for most Chinese. 
of Chinese lived on less than two dollars a day in 1978, the World Bank's definition of absolute poverty. And in recent years, the last 70 million forced to survive those income have moved into the two dollars plus bracket under a policy personally promoted by Xi Jinping. But if things are not going well, and if we have a number of vicious circles opening up now, who knows what might happen if property prices continue to fall and we get back to property prices having more realistic level, which are generally, I mean, they ought to be somewhere around five or six times earnings uh, for ordinary, ordinary property rather than 50. Well, I think there's an important point about China's economy, which a lot of people find quite hard to grasp. When the property market slumps, which it did dramatically last year, local governments also get into big trouble. Talk us through the implications of that, please. It's all part of the fact that China's economy developed with Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening up policy, but it didn't develop in a planned way, if you like, because you couldn't develop in a planned way from that base that he inherited. You did whatever, you know, as, as he said in the, uh, in the Southern Tour in 1992. Um, you know, the important question is, it doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white, as long as it catches mice. And one of the problems that we're now facing in China is that local governments came to depend on land sales and land related tax revenue rather than local taxes. So combined, land sales and land related tax revenue were 37% of total revenue in 2021, which is fine if you're building lots and lots of apartments, whether or not they're being used or not. But now they're in major decline. And one of the things that's happened, of course, is that instead of tackling that problem, local governments have been setting up their own financing vehicles, local government financing vehicles, they're called. And they've now, according to the IMF, borrowed a total of $9 trillion. And this is half, of course, of China's reported economic output, its GDP. And recently, again, another sign of crisis developing here, not crisis actual, but crisis potential crisis developing, is that the local governments have had to rely on central government to bail out some of these weaker vehicles. So in other words, we're no longer talking about a disaster waiting to happen, but a disaster in motion in the early stages. So in 2022, the property crash saw land sales revenue fall by 23%. And more than half of these supposed sales, 54%, were actually bought by the related local government financing vehicle. So, you know, you're seeing people moving money around from one account to another to try and keep the show on the road. And that is going to be a disaster developing over time. So following on from that, Paul, I can see that the government is now aiming to expand manufacturing activity. And there's clearly a hope that this could compensate for a loss of jobs in the property sector, which, as you say, is uh, in a bit of a crisis. What do you think would be the outcome of that government policy then? What I think it highlights is that the government has talked for the last 10 years about the need to increase domestic consumption to support the economy. And the problem is that the entrenched interests of the country 
since 1978 have been instead around exports becoming the manufacturing capital of the world and infrastructure building the largest high-speed rail network in the world those areas and the money has gone into that and wages have been kept low so consumption in china is only around the mid 40s as a percent of gdp compared to the mid 60s in the west right you say Duncan, that's fairly straightforward, Paul. What you need to do is you need to move from the mid-40s to the mid-60s as quickly as possible. Exactly. But we've seen the government for the last 10 or so years finding it more and more difficult to turn promises into action. For the simple reason that if you are in a privileged position today, you don't want to give up your privilege. And with the problems in the property market, you now have a situation where if you are going to reduce the income in one area, it's a what they call a zero sum game. Allocating more resources to domestic consumption would mean cutting back on the subsidies enjoyed by today's winners, turning them effect, and these are powerful interest groups, into losers. Well, nobody wants to become a loser. And if they're a powerful interest group, they are going to resist that change. And so what we're seeing is that government's promises of change are continually being stalled. But it is a zero-sum game. And coming back to your earlier question, who are the losers then? They are the families with a relatively low share of GDP. And this is, this is the part of the vicious circle that we're now going to see more and more of. Those who own property, and let's face it, that the, you know, the townspeople, because they couldn't, it, it couldn't invest overseas and the, the stock market has always been a casino, people have tended to invest in property on the grounds that the government would never let prices fall, which of course they are now, and now they're seeing, therefore, their investment decline in value. So their savings, which went into property, are declining in value, and they still have a relatively low share of consumption in terms of GDP. Well, thank you, Paul. You've given us a lot to think about there, and I really appreciate your astute and carefully considered answers. That was Paul Hodges, founder of New Normal Consulting. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.